This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's really the announcement is in the cybersecurity data breach space, and I think it's going to be of much wider implication than people might think at first blush. So basically what Lloyds has said is that it's effectively altering cybersecurity policy rules to exclude coverage for nation state attacks. This is Tom Fox. We take things in a little bit different direction today as we have Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, and Matt Kelly joining in this episode of Life with GDPR. The topic is the changes in cyber insurance coverage for uh, companies who have data breaches and the implications and the results that will come from this change. It's a fascinating exploration of a topic that's multifaceted. I know you'll get a lot out of it. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Our friends at Lloyd's had a pretty big announcement that you and your colleagues have written about. What does Lloyd's have to do with data privacy and data protection? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's really the announcement is in the cybersecurity data breach space. And I think it's going to be of much wider implication than people might think at first blush. So basically what Lloyds has said is that it's effectively altering cybersecurity policy rules to exclude coverage for nation state attacks. This is part of a trend that's been ongoing for some time, really. There's been some litigation in the US involving Merck and their NotPetya ransomware in 2017, which led to a number of insurers to change their policy. And in some respects, they're aligning the offline and the online world. So just as they won't pay for acts of war and terrorist attacks in offline policies, then in some respects, the Lloyd's decision will align 
the online world with that. Now, of course, it won't cover all insurance policies. There are some insurance policies that don't touch Lloyd's, but I think it will be a general trend across the market. As I say, it is a trend since at least 2017. The policy wording's got tighter. And of course, it comes at a time when organizations are facing other strains as well. As a general rule, it's harder to get cybersecurity policies than it was even two years ago. And the excess on those policies has increased as well. So you're generally paying significantly more money for less cover. And that's even if you can get insurance. Some organizations are having real challenges with getting cover. And usually insurers are asking more questions about cyber security stance before they will even sign people up. And I think it also has a couple of other ramifications that people aren't talking that much about yet, but I think are worth mentioning. First of all, I think that for a lot of organizations, their knee-jerk reaction whenever they have a cyber attack, whenever it becomes public, is to say, it was a sophisticated zero-day nation-state attack. And I think they're probably saying that. Most of them are saying that because they're scared of Matt Kelly. Some of them are saying that because they're scared of other journalists giving them a hard time over their cybersecurity processes. And they think if we say it's zero-day, sophisticated, and nation-state, all in one sentence, then people have some sympathy with them and regard them as the victim rather than the people whose data has been lost. And I think in many of the cases that we're involved with, it's not really that credible to say sophisticated zero-day nation-state. I spoke at a conference recently with somebody who had some stats, which I wish I could remember, but it's something like 76% of reported ransomware incidents are down to 21 simple fixes that people haven't done. So they haven't updated their operating system or they haven't updated a particular type of software. And these exploits, technically called in the trade CVEs, these 20-something are responsible for the majority of ransomware attacks. So usually this zero-day nation-state sophisticated is a lie anyway. But of course, now corporations are potentially in that talking themselves out of cover situation because the more credibility they give to the people who are attacking them, then I think the more likely insurers are to investigate declining coverage as the terms change to exclude nation-state attacks. And I think one of the other implications that people haven't yet thought through is simple cash flow. Most insurance policies are written on a reimbursement basis. So you've got to suffer the loss, submit your receipts, and then the insurer pays you back. We've already seen that be an issue with Instant Co., the law firm, for example. They say that they had a cyber attack on their systems. They say that cost them 4.9 million sterling in that attack. And they said that the insurance payout would probably be 12 months later. 
as a result, they had to go back to the stock exchange and fundraise to fund that gap. Their shares dropped 50% because they went back to the market and tried to raise that money. So, for many organizations, cash flow will be fatal in a cyber attack because insurers only pay on a reimbursement basis. And if they say silly things like sophisticated zero day, they'll stretch that 12-month repayment window to 24 months or 18 months or whatever that might be with insurers investigating whether it was nation state and whether it's an insurable risk. So, I think it isn't just a development for the sort of insurance nerds. I think for compliance officers, there's a number of steps they've got to take, really. I think, first of all, look at the security measures that are in place. Some organizations look at insurance as an alternative to protection, and that just isn't the case anymore. You can't just pass that risk on to insurers, firstly, because they might cover you. Secondly, if they do, it's going to be expensive. And thirdly, even if they do cover you, they might not pay out if you have an attack. So you've got to look at your insurer, you've got to look at your security stance. You've got to try and prevent attacks happening. And when attacks do happen, you're going to have rehearsed them and coordinate, I think, much better with the crisis management team, with the crisis communications team, with the corporate communications team, and not dish out this trope of it being a sophisticated nation state zero day attack, because that might come back to haunt you as well. And then I think, again, the other bit of the compliance officer's role possibly is to look at the financial wherewithal of the organization. So, not only can it survive a cyber attack, but if it survives a cyber attack, can it ensure uh, that it can survive that cash flow gap, if you like, that caught uh, in Instant Co out recently in its uh, July going to the market for cash. So, I think it's got much wider implications than you than you might first think, and it'd be interesting to see. By the way, the new rules come in 31st March next year, but my expectation is that many new policies will have a flavor of this new role, rule from here on out. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Jonathan? I, I do have a comment. First off, thank you, Jonathan, for your kind words about me. And I will hold true to them and give companies a hard time now because I think you are spot on with what you were saying. One thing that comes to mind as I was listening to you, I was actually thinking of the Haynes brand cybersecurity attack that they announced in May that they had one, and then they filed their quarterly report in early August where they announced that this attack was, it disrupted their customer fulfillment operations for three weeks and cost them roughly $100 million in lost sales. That's what Haynes estimated. That was roughly equal to 6.2% of total sales they had expected, and then they got a million less. So this was a 6.2% hit to revenue from a single ransomware attack. It's just if you look at what happened with Hank, that their fulfillment center capabilities were knocked offline, if that happened in the real world, it would be equivalent to a bunch of thugs 
changing the locks on your warehouse and your loading docks, and then management couldn't get those locks open for another three weeks. If that happened, there is no way an insurance company would say, oh, we are absolutely going to pay your business interruption insurance claim. The insurance firms would say, you are morons. How did you let this happen? You had a material weakness in your inventory control. We're not going to pay for that. That dynamic is perfectly valid, and I do think we're going to see it more and more often in the cybersecurity world. And lastly, your point about how most companies might say this is a zero-day exploit from a nation state and it's sophisticated. Also, I agree, that is not true. Most cybersecurity attacks are pretty simple phishing attacks where the employee gets duped into coughing up the access controls, and then we're off to the races. But if your employees keep falling for these attacks, you could say that is a material weakness in your cybersecurity training Mm -hmm. and your control environment. And then I could see Lloyd's and other insurers for cyber policies saying, no, we're not going to pay for that because your training stinks and you've got a bunch of knuckleheads who are falling for every scam that comes along. These are the sort of questions that are going to come to the in years to come. And people will need to think about it because it is not going away. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think we need to get away from buying anti-phishing training as a commodity. Too many corporations, I think, buy on cost. And that means that they teach people in the organization about Nigerian princes and not to click on emails from Nigerian princes because that was the risk when the lowest cost courses were developed because a lot of them are old and stale and teach people about the wrong risks. But if you look at the risks that, as you rightly say, phishing attacks mutate all the time. The one I dealt with last week was a monkeypox. The corporation has decided to get everybody vaccinated against monkeypox who's traveling. Please organize your appointment. They're really good at getting into people's psyche and giving them immediate events that they have to respond to, et cetera, et cetera. So if your training is three years out of date, there is no way that you can respond to the latest events. So I think organizations are going to have to look much better, particularly at phishing training. And obviously, just as you get smart, criminals get smarter. Things like watering hole attacks, bypassing MFA. A lot of these attacks come from the theoretically possible to the absolutely it's happening in maybe a 10-day window now. And and so organizations have got to make sure that their training's fit for purpose. And I absolutely agree with you that I think we're going to see insurers denying cover on the basis that people have been penny-pinching along the way. Jonathan, I have a couple of questions for you. First is a technical legal question. The second, perhaps a little more strategic. Question number one, who's the burden of proof if the carrier denies coverage based upon an attack? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And it seems to me that I think we're going to have litigation on this. From what I believe, there have been two cases in the US, as I say, one involving Merck on NotPetya. There's another one, I believe, I think, with WannaCry. And I think different courts have almost come to different conclusions. It seems to me that that conventionally, I think the burden will be on the, the insured to say that they're within cover 
of the policy. And I think a lot of these things are going to end up being truly difficult. Attribution with ransomware, for example, is not an exact science. The cases that I've been involved with, it usually involves somebody really expert in the taking a sample of the code that's locked down the system, dropping that sample into a sort of code library, if you like, and saying, this looks similar because, and then they'll have a provisional attribution to gang X, gang Y, gang Z. But the issue with that, of course, is that these gangs aren't sort of stable gangs. They're loose alliances of criminals that form and disband. So even if you can prove that the code was last seen with Gang X, you can't necessarily prove that your attack is from Gang X because a member of Gang X might have left and taken if you like, their precedents with them. So just as lawyers take their precedent bank from law firm to law firm when they move, well, so do ransomware attackers. They take their code, they take their ransom note, email, or screenshot, or whatever that might be. So I think we're going to see a lot of litigation over attribution. I think we're going to see a lot of litigation over burden of proof. And I guess one of the other messages of that will be to look at the quality of the insurer who's insuring you as well. I think some insurers are more likely to give people a hard time, particularly when they've written more policies than they should have. And in some respects, in the past, I think, when insurers have asked tough questions before they write the policy, people have thought, well, then I'll switch to a different insurer. That might not be the right strategy because it might be that the insurer who's asking you the tough questions at inception is more likely to pay because they've looked at the risk more and more maturely before writing the policy than some of these Johnny-come-lately insurers who get into the market, drop the premiums, make it easy, and then try and renege on the policy once there's an, a, an event. And I want to go hyper-technical now. Do you think Munich Swiss and Zurich Re will follow form on this as well in the reinsurance market? Yeah, personally, I do. I think that it will go across the market, really. I think that it'll be, if you like, a signal that nation state is probably going to come off cover. Maybe, just maybe, you'll get some specialist insurer somewhere who'll offer cover for that, just as you can still specialist insurer executives traveling to Africa against physical ransoms. But I think that'll be a very small part of the market. And obviously, the premiums for that type of cover, I think, are going to be, I'd expect, would be pretty enormous. And so, I think the Lloyd's announcement is an evolution, not a revolution. I think the market's been headed that way, as I say, at least since 2017. Jonathan Marks, you have a question or comment for Jonathan Armstrong? I just have a general comment. If you look at the risks that are being banded around at the boardroom level, specifically cyber risk, and you're looking at a duty of care and duty of loyalty, shouldn't you be asking who's filling out the application to apply for insurance? Uh, Because in my experience, I remember the applications originally, there were eight questions on there. And the person that actually knew anything about IT infrastructure, data security and privacy, was not the one that was filling out that form. I just wonder, you talk about coverage being denied and all these other things that potentially could happen. 
it's going to happen at some point to somebody. I just wonder whether the board is actually taking a strong enough stance in their oversight role and actually asking that tough question, who is filling out this thing? And are they getting the right information being provided back to them so that they can make informed decisions? I bet not. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I, th- I know for a fact that in some cases, the right person hasn't been filling out that that policy, the coverage application, for want of a better word. Too often, people don't involve the CISO. They don't involve the C. I've seen a case where, for example, they've ticked the box to say, yes, multi-factor authentication, MFA is across all of our systems. And it wasn't. Oftentimes, people answer the questions for their own IT environment, but forget the fact that all of their HR data is in an HR provider in the cloud. All of their payroll data is in the cloud. And to answer a lot of the questions in the proposal truthfully, you're going to have to drill down into what those suppliers do with data as well. And increasingly, we're seeing people suffer from big ransomware attacks because their suppliers have been compromised, not their own network. If you look at things like SolarWinds, if you look at the attack on time clocking systems in November, December time, which I think hit the majority of the Fortune 500. One vendor being attacked can cause near chaos across the whole of of industry. So, I think we're going to see, you're right, you're going to have to get the right team to fill in the proposal form. And maybe that's something that you also consult your crisis management team on as well, so that you've got that holistic oversight that the people who are going to have to manage the crisis know what the insurance cover is, and and both of those processes can inform each other. But certainly the CISO needs to be involved. Yeah, and I think just one more point here. We all talk about cyber risk, but the other thing that also comes into play here is staffing risk. And since people are leaving organizations left and right, is in the area of new things, I think, again, from an oversight perspective, someone could be asking a tough question. Are we playing this game without a shortstop in the second basement? And if we are, who's covering them? And if they're not, what are we doing about it? And I, I see many organizations that are go look online or all advertising for people in the IT world. I talk to my buddies, my friends, my colleagues, and they're all clamoring because they just don't have the right talent in-house to do this. It's a, it's a mess. I think that's a great point as well. One of the, just quickly, because I know we're short of time, but one of the most interesting ransomware attacks I did last year, the chief information officer just said, I'm not the right guy to lead the response. Basically said, in, in not many more words than this, I'm really good at good times, but this is bad times. And so the great thing was, because he was really honest and candid up front, rather than pretending, we, we managed to hire somebody in who was a bad times CIA. And they worked in parallel, and he did business as usual, of which there wasn't much business as usual. But we got a guy who's an experienced incident commander who they worked really well side by side. And I know it was a sort of career defining moment for the CIO to put his hand up in the biggest crisis the corporations faced and say, I haven't got the skills to manage this. But I think his honesty to what could have been a 
fatal event for the corporation into something that they survived. And if he hadn't done the honest thing and had have soldiered off, we would have found out in 72 hours that he wasn't the man for the job, but by then it might have been too late. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this topic, so I hope you will check that out. The uh, link will be in the show notes. I'd like to tell you about two recent limited edition podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first one celebrated 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. It's entitled Ulysses at 100, Lessons for the 21st Century Compliance Professional. The second is Never the Same, Why Business Has Changed Forever After the Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Five Key Areas, Supply Chain, Sanctions, and a corruption as national security issue, cybersecurity, and ESG. You can check out both of these podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Ulysses series is under the podcast series, Greetings and Felicitations. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again where we take up another issue around GDPR. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.